Mr. Cheney, are you ready to take the oath? I am. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, Michael Richard Pence. I, Spiro Theodore Agnew. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. Welcome to the ninth episode of Running Mates. It's me, your host Lars Emerson as always, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Levito. Been playing NHL 20 all day to prepare. Let's let's do it. Let's get down. <laughs> this is the podcast where we look at every presidential election through the lens of their vice presidential picks. And we talk about who they should have chosen instead. This week, it's election Y2K, a new century in America. And talk about a great first election, at least I remember, Mike. I don't know about you. Yes, certainly is. <laughs> yeah. Just clean cut. Clear result, <laughs> no serious consequences, not controversial at all. Uh, just kidding. Let's talk about what is probably the most unclear election result in American history, I think most people would argue, and whether or not it could have gone differently if Bush or Gore had chosen a different running mate. Probably, right? If the election is this close, I think... Certainly have some effect. I think it would do something, yeah. right? Because of how close this election is and how important it is as a turning point both in American history, electoral history, and as we launch into this new century, we're doing something a little differently this episode. We want to spend a bit more time than usual talking about the context of what happens in this election and its implications afterwards. Because, yeah, this election is so close that I genuinely believe if you put Michael and me in charge of choosing their <laughs> running mates, I think you'd have a different result. Would, would you disagree? <laughs> it, 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 the margin is just so close that it would have to have some kind of effect, positive I, or negative. <laughs> yeah. And it's important to understand why. So yeah. that's why we're going to do that. Because this is probably the most important episode, if you're subscribing to the theory that running mates can swing elections on the margin, we're actually going to break this episode into two parts. In this part, the first part, we're going to lay the groundwork, explain how each party came to nominate Al Gore and George W. Bush, why they picked their respective running mates, and how the election unfolded from there. We're then going to talk about our alternatives to Cheney and close out what happened to Cheney in this episode. Then next week, in our part two, We'll go into our alternative VP picks for Gore, talk about what happened to his pick, Joe Lieberman, and end with our big conclusions on how the running mate impacted this election overall. So, without further ado, let's get down with Election 2000, Cheney v. Lieberman, Part 1. The year is 2000. The economy is good. There's actually been a budget surplus, something we don't, don't hear about a lot, don't <laughs> see a lot, <laughs> certainly in the modern era. There's not a lot of focus on foreign policy. Things, things are weirdly quiet, mm -hmm. perhaps pretending something to come. Mm -hmm. However, the incumbent president, Bill Clinton, has been impeached. He's only the second president to ever be impeached. And a final vote in the Senate as to his innocence happens in 99. He's deemed not guilty. This casts a shadow over the Democrats nonetheless, especially for one, his vice president, Al Gore. On the Democratic side of the primary, with the incumbent president being impeached and ultimately acquitted, Al Gore is still the front-runner for the nomination. But this puts Gore in kind of an awkward position, and an odd one, in that he had to start campaigning, but he kind of avoided campaigning with Clinton at all. The irony of all this is Clinton is actually still very popular nationally. Is The impeachment actually went very much his way. Mm -hmm. This Democratic primary is also unusual because Gore basically was just the front-runner and stayed that way the entire time. He entered the race, he's the heavy hitter, he's the clear successor to Clinton, and he just totally wiped out the field. Former New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley, former New York Nick as well, was the only other candidate, and he did secure the endorsement of one Michael Jordan. Game recognized game. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I'm sure would drive my father wild. 
Despite Bradley's challenge, Gore won literally every single contest. He easily secured the nomination by early March, and Gore is to this day the only non-incumbent presidential candidate to win every single contest since the creation of the modern presidential primary. He was nominated unanimously during the convention, jointly nominated by his daughter, and his Harvard roommate won Tommy Lee Jones. What about on the Republican side? So uh, the field was a bit more wide open and lacked a clear frontrunner for a while. You had people like former Tennessee Governor Lamar Alexander. You had Pat Buchanan, who we've talked about on this podcast. Herman Cain, businessman, also running, as well as former Labor Secretary Elizabeth Dole. And, of course, she was also the wife of Bob Dole, last election's Republican nominee. Uh, Ohio Congressman John Kasich, New Hampshire Senator Bob Smith, and one of our favorites, former Vice President Dan Quayle. They all entered the race, but they all withdrew before the primaries. Steve Forbes, who we also talked about last episode, former Undersecretary of Education Gary Bauer and Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, would also contest primaries. Forbes would actually come in a close second in Iowa, but they would end up receiving less than 1% of the vote nationally, which basically left the primary as a two-man race between two people. The establishment's choice, which is Texas Governor George W. Bush, whose father, of course, was George H.W. Bush, and you also had Arizona Senator John McCain, who was, you know, the maverick. His, him and the outsider, he's, he's running as new blood. Bush, like I said, was the establishment choice. He received key endorsements from George Shultz, Reagan's Secretary of State, and a lot of other conservative think tankers. He ran on a platform of compassionate conservatism, which emphasized increased funding for education, subsidies to charitable organizations, and cuts to income and capital gains taxes. McCain ran as an outsider and a maverick, focusing on campaign finance reform, as I said. Bush racked up a lot of cash early, and he cruised to an early victory in Iowa. McCain actually upset him in New Hampshire, and he, he remained competitive for a lot of the early part of the primary. Uh, he would win all but one New England primary, as well as his home state of Arizona and Michigan. Interesting thing about Michigan is it highlighted his biggest problem, which is that he was very popular among independents and Democrats, but not that popular among Republicans, actually. He won the Michigan primary, which was an open primary, without winning the Republican vote. He actually lost it on a, at a two-to-one margin to Bush, but he still won the primary. It's a problem if you're running to be the Republican Party's nominee yeah. for president. Yeah, yeah. And according to New York Times, you know, 40 to 51% of the voters were, like, non-Republicans, so mm. that helped him. The rather moved to the right, McCain was like, ah, people clearly like that I'm a maverick, so very close to the Virginia primary, he kind of doubled down on the centrist strategy, and he gave a speech where he criticized the religious right a lot. That would actually end up hurting him in Virginia, which, very big state, we tend to think of liberal now, but actually is a big conservative base. He'd end up losing that primary most of Super Tuesday, after which he would suspend his campaign. It's almost like McCain pivoted to the general way too early. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about who each candidate chose as their real running mate. Al Gore picks Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, a moderate Democrat who was, you know, tough on defense, tough on foreign policy issues. He had also publicly denounced President Clinton during the Lewinsky scandal, though ultimately voted against conviction during the impeachment. A lot of pundits kind of construed this pick at the time as a way to further distance Gore from Clinton, trying to toe kind of this awkward line of being the vice president to a president who had been impeached, but also very much supportive of his ideology and his policies. And indeed, Gore did avoid appearing with Clinton during major campaign events. Instead, he punted, which is crazy, he punted the incumbent president, Bill Clinton, to low-scale appearances in areas where Clinton was still polling well. Mm-hmm. It's just funny. The same I mean, did McCain allowed. really, just skipping ahead eight years, did McCain really ask for that many Bush appearances in That's 2008? The, what's weird is Clinton still is, like, <laughs> yeah, that popular. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I think this is widely regarded as a mistake now, yeah, as Clinton... Yeah. He had high 50s, high, mm-hmm. like low 60 approval ratings. 
in his last year in office where this is all going on. And there's actually some evidence that this discouraged turnout by like the more loyal Clinton supporters. Lieberman is also an interesting pick because he is the first Jewish candidate on a major party presidential ticket, though I will note that Barry Goldwater identified as Episcopalian, but occasionally called himself Jewish or at least of Jewish descent. Mm -hmm. Lieberman's Orthodox Judaism was also seen as somewhat of like a religious play for Democrats trying to regain kind of the moral high ground after maybe the moral failings of the Clinton administration. And he had this history of calling for higher moral standards in movies, pop, music, video games, basically everything that's fun. <laughs> the New York Times remarked that choosing such a deeply religious candidate like Lieberman may make religion an issue in the U.S. presidential campaign for the first time since 1960, when Democrats, of course, nominated the Catholic John F. Kennedy. Religion never comes up in politics anymore. I don't know what they were talking <laughs> about. Yeah, so Bush would choose Dick Cheney, former Secretary of Defense and former congressman from Wyoming. This was kind of weird because Bush actually chose Cheney, who was CEO of energy giant Halliburton at the time, to head up his VP selection committee. And Cheney reportedly suggested former Missouri Senator John Danforth as his pick, but Bush ended up picking Cheney himself. Cheney's selection actually necessitated the sale of his Dallas home and his return to his home state of Wyoming, since electors cannot vote for both a presidential and a vice presidential candidate for from their home state, meaning that if, if Bush or Cheney had both stayed in Texas, one of them would have to forfeit their electoral votes if they had won Texas, which <laughs> in this it's, election. Exactly. Yeah. It's weird. Like it's it almost seems like in any other election, like maybe that wouldn't be a huge deal. Obviously you would do it anyway, yeah. but like it's like it's like, oh wow, they actually like avoided catastrophe like a constitutional <laughs> crisis right. by doing this. Cheney had a long and varied career in Washington. He got his first real gig as a staffer for Donald Rumsfeld, you ever heard of him, when he was head of the Office of Economic Opportunity, but he made his earliest splash as Gerald Ford's chief of staff. Uh, Cheney would go on to be elected to the House in 1978, and he'd served there for 10 years, including since his chair of the House Republican Conference and three months as House Minority Whip before he was named as George H.W. Bush's Secretary of Defense. There he actually advocated for cutting military spending as the Cold War dwindled and oversaw the invasion of Panama and, of course, the Persian Gulf War. He was instrumental in establishing American military bases in Saudi Arabia during the latter conflict and was outspoken in his belief that invading Iraq after the liberation of Kuwait would have been a, quote, bad idea and turned the rest into a direct quote quagmire which is it's a shame he didn't feel that way years mm. later but we'll, we'll get to that interesting yeah <laughs> uh all right moving right along the vp debate this year was considered relatively mundane both candidates lieberman and cheney essentially hit on issues of their respective nominees uh, and the debate was not very flashy in fact lieberman reflected on the debate years later, called it one of his proudest moments of the campaign because of how civil it was. Cheney noted that he liked the old Lieberman, who supposedly was perceived as more moderate and bipartisan and socially conservative than this new Lieberman, who was more of a democratic standard bearer, just trying to be Al Gore Jr. or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, Lieberman reminded folks that after eight years of Democrats in power, they were all indeed better off. He even jabbed that Cheney, you know, having made millions of dollars from Halliburton in those eight years, was clearly better off. <laughs> Cheney, and I like love this response, actually very smart. Cheney responded, and I can tell you, Joe, that the government had absolutely nothing to do with it. That's that, like that's a good line. That is prime Republican Democrat banter mm -hmm. right there. <laughs> I was gonna say that wouldn't be the case for Halliburton later, when in fact the government had a lot to do with their success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the general election stayed 
focused on mostly domestic issues. You know, the surplus, Social Security and Medicare reform, with Gore kind of poking Bush for his inexperience. You know, he'd only been governor of Texas for about five years at this point. And Bush poking Gore for Clinton's perceived unnecessary international interventions. The irony to modern Americans listening to this podcast is, I'm sure, not lost. Mm -hmm. Election day rolls around, and the result... Where do I even start here? Well, before I start, (laughs) Mike and I both watched Recount before recording this, which is a movie about the Florida recount and everything that unfolded after election day. It's on HBO. Strongly recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. Movies about elections. I know I am. (laughs) Anyway, to sum it up, election night comes around. Bush carries the South. He picks up... Ohio, Indiana, much of middle America. Gore balances this out by taking the Northeast and the Pacific Coast. The night goes on, and Wisconsin and Oregon, New Mexico, Iowa are too close to call, but Florida very evidently is a make-or-break state, holding 25 electoral votes. Around 8 p.m. on election night, Florida is called for Gore. By 10 p.m., however, Bush had taken a fairly wide lead in Florida, and networks were forced to rescind their call for Gore. Gore concedes privately to Bush that night, but then later retracts it when he realizes that Bush's margin is now less than a few thousand votes. Over the course of the next week, where the result is unclear, the Florida Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, who was also the co-chair of Bush's Florida campaign, stopped the hand recounts due to a statutory deadline. The Florida Supreme Court then extends the deadline, but the U.S. Supreme Court vacates their decision. By the end of November, the state certifies Bush as the winner in Florida by 537 votes, which Gore contested, and the Florida Supreme Court ruled in favor of a recount of about 70,000 votes. The U.S. Supreme Court stopped that recount, and the Florida legislature did certify Bush the winner with Gore conceding in mid-December. It's a lot. There are a lot of issues to unpack here. There's the butterfly ballot system where, you know, Pat Buchanan kind of somehow was listed second on the ballot and a lot of voters thought they accidentally voted for him. Look it up on the internet if you want to see how confusing it is. There's also the mass purge of so-called felons from voter rolls, uh, which were predominantly African-American voters who presumably would have voted for Gore. There's also the calling of the race that night by networks which means a lot of voters just simply stopped voting. Much of the panhandle of Florida is actually in central time. Mm-hmm. We already talked about how the Secretary of State of Florida was Bush's Florida co-chair. Well, get this, the governor of Florida was his brother, Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Jeb Bush did recuse himself from the whole event after election night. Mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. Third-party candidate Ralph Nader also won about 2.7% of the vote nationally with 97,000 votes in Florida and 22,000 in New Hampshire, which, which kind of led to arguments that Nader had, had spoiled the election for Gore, as it's presumed Nader, you know, being a left-leaning candidate, you know, kind of stole these votes from Gore. Overvotes were also rampant, where voters had appeared to vote for one candidate, then crossed it out and voted for another, but the machines read this as a failed ballot. There were issues with hanging chads, where like punch card ballots weren't totally punched through, and panels had to be set up during the manual recount to determine the intent of the voter. It gets very technical, very odd, and the entire nation is just like, who on earth is gonna be president? My point is this is all a mess. It's a mess on a margin of just a few hundred votes in a state that would decide the entire election, and the winner was in doubt for a month. Bush, ultimately, with Florida, won 271 electoral votes. That's two more than you need to win. To Gore's 266. States like Nevada or New Hampshire, with only four electoral votes, both went to Bush just barely. Had Gore won either, he still would have won the election without Florida. 
Gore, of course, did win the popular vote overall by a margin of about 500,000 voters, making him the first person since Grover Cleveland in 1888 to win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College. This election and the Supreme Court's involvement has had wide-ranging effects on the American Republic, including degrading American trust in institutions like the Supreme Court, because this was seen as a political intervention by the court, and perhaps American mistrust in elections in general, you know, increased partisanship, the politicization of the legal system. With all that in mind, Bush and Cheney do head on to the White House for what would of course be eight very, very important years in American history, certainly in American foreign policy. Can I make a modest proposal? Sure. Can there be a law that bans state secretary of states from being involved in electoral politics unless they resign? Like I'm thinking of this and I'm thinking of the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia. Oh yeah. Where Brian Kemp was the secretary of state of Georgia and was running for governor. And oh, look, all these voting machines in mostly minority neighborhoods are not working in like the closest Georgia governor election in a very long time. That's so weird. Like, I, just, I feel like there should be some rules about that. There, there are clear... Yeah, there are conflicts of interest. Yes. Um, all right. <laughs> that's, that's what really happened. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the main act. Mm-hmm. So here are our picks for who Bush should have chosen over Cheney. Would you like to go first, Mike? So I went with, for my number five pick... Elizabeth Dole, the aforementioned Elizabeth Dole, former Secretary of Transportation and Secretary of Labor, and as we mentioned before, the betrothed to uh, former Senator Bob Dole. Perhaps a dubious geographic advantage, she is from North Carolina at this point, which Bush does win, but I like her because she's a holdover from the Reagan-Bush years, and we're kind of in the what feels like a wilderness period for the Republican Party. Like, we talked about last episode how, like, the Dole Kemptick just feels very uninspired. My, my, my thought process here is that she's kind of just, like, nice Dick Cheney, like, you know, she is also a very experienced bureaucrat and a very experienced politico, but she doesn't have a lot of the sort of the shadier connections and reputation that Dick Cheney had. And so she could also serve as a similar role in sort of like guiding George W. Bush through the federal governing process. And like, you know, that experience, I think, would also help with voters. I think it's probably part of the reason why Bush chose Cheney was that, you know, he'd only been governor for six years. That was, that was his first elected office. He had owned the Texas Rangers and, and owned an oil company before that. So he's a political novice, really. Also, I think it helps that she's a woman and if we're doing this election on the margins any margin you can chip away at helps you know even she's considered pretty moderate too like bush at this point is considered like conservative like not hard right but he was the conservative mccain was the moderate and you know she actually upset well her appointment rather kind of rankled some conservatives when she was appointed as transportation secretary by reagan she's considered an quote aggressive feminist again my thing is like she it could be a bridge between sort of this orthodox reaganism and between the compassionate conservatism that bush wants to pursue yeah, uh, she's also coming off a good wave of publicity from her speech at the 96 convention. Hmm. So I, spoiler alert, we're probably going to pick a lot of like state picks here. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few that's not really that. Yeah. North Carolina is not competitive at all, no, right? No. It, it went for Bush by 13 points. I do think she's better than Cheney. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we'll unpack why, I think, later. I actually think I'm totally on board with this, the more, right. I, the more I think about it. The only thing I think Cheney gives Bush is credibility, bureaucratic, in Washington. I, th- I think there are a lot of people you could have been bolder with mm-hmm. who are probably less, slightly less evil yeah. who give you that credibility. And I think Elizabeth Dole, mm-hmm. she's a she's an insider pick right. that probably packs more of an election. Like, imagining Dick Cheney 
campaigning baffles me. It, it is it's weird. So weird. Or like in a debate. Right. Um, he is not an electoral pick. It's yeah. so weird. It just seems like Bush wanted to pick his friend. Right. Or his family friend. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 yeah. it, it's interesting. It, it also, I, I think, I mean, I think part of the reason Bush trishing as well is that Cheney had foreign policy experience and Bush did not. The, the Republican establishment is full of people with politics. Exactly, right, right, right. Well, and that's what I'm saying is, though, but but the thing is, Bush, like, explicitly wants to be, like, a domestic policy president. Like, he wants to focus on education and health care and tax cuts and things like that. And Elizabeth Dole has experience working in that, obviously, right? Mm. You know, and I think there is the fact that she ran, like, transportation and labor, which I'm sure there are some Republicans who think those cabinet positions should not even exist, right? And I think it lends credibility to the idea of, like, compassionate conservatism, sort of using the organs of government in a conservative way, like, but not a completely austere way. I, the one the one thing I will say is that, like, if there's a ticket that's Bush Dole, are people just going to be like, wait a minute, didn't we, like, vote against those two guys the past two elections? What's going on here? That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Cool. My number five, I went with Arlen Specter, middle of the ground Pennsylvania senator, a centrist and a bit of a maverick himself. I think this kind of plays to the center in a way that McCain was trying to without being as like overtly prickly, right? Mm. And Clinton Gore, you know, Clinton obviously moved to the center in the middle of his presidential term. I think it kind of cuts Gore off there. I, I don't think people perceived Al Gore as like very, very liberal. I also think it also it assuages concerns that Bush doesn't know what he's getting into on the federal level, especially in Congress. Pennsylvania is also a huge state with 23 electoral votes that went for Gore by about 4%. If Bush had won it, it would effectively tie this election with a 269 to 269 electoral votes had Gore won Florida. You know, it's, uh, it's funny. I was reading a lot of articles uh, from like October of 2000 and researching for this, and it was saying like, an electoral college tie is so likely because of how close it could be, and all these articles were like explaining the process. For those who don't know, if no candidate receives a majority for president, this throws the choice of president to the House, who then votes by state so that whichever party controls the majority of individual states, in 2001 this would have been the Republicans, chooses the president. Anyway, uh, all these articles are talking about is how a tie could happen, but how it would be so unlikely that someone could lose the electoral college and not win the popular vote. (laughs) Oops. Anyway, my point is, Pennsylvania's huge. It's come up, like, a couple times in the last few episodes. It's like, Pennsylvania's this huge state that Republicans have an opportunity to start to invest in. It's, it's mm. quite close, or it's been quite close in the last couple elections. It's basically the size of Florida, and yet Republicans aren't really putting in the effort there, right? That's why I want Specter. Yeah, I don't think this is a bad pick. So he tried to vote not proven for the Clinton impeachment case. But it was recorded as, as not guilty because you can vote not proven. Mm-hmm. Do you worry? Because I, I feel like, you know, this is such a close election. And really, this is, in some ways, this is a time of consensus in American politics where it feels like we're all kind of on board with the idea of small government, actually. You know, it, it feels like you know, there's just an air of, like, of political moderation in, in some ways. Do you worry, though, that, like, he's almost too moderate? If this becomes, like, a character... Like, I'm thinking we watched watched Recount a night or two ago. The one guy is, like, the stain of Bill Clinton will be removed from the White House. Whereas Arlen Specter, like, very decisively took action to make sure the stain of Bill Clinton stayed in the White House. Do you you worry that that would help him... Hurt him, rather, with the Republican base? I actually don't. The Clinton impeachment, I I think, was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Right? This is something that clearly made Clinton stronger... 
I get alienated a lot of people from the Republican Party at the time. Gore's abandonment of Clinton is widely like regarded as kind of a mistake. Specter is also not unique. There were many other Republicans who voted against convicting the president here, right? Mm-hmm. I think it may actually help Bush. If Bush is perceived as, and I don't know that he is, if, but if people think of Bush as like this diehard conservative, it's like, we're going we're gonna to get revenge on these Clintons. Maybe this, this balances it out. And you know, Specter kind of infamously becomes a Democrat in 2009. Mm-hmm. He is obviously very middle of the road, but I, but I think this helps Bush. I, I, I just think it, it, it tempers the, the fumes, right? It, it kind of pushes the impeachment out of the way. It, it's kind of Bush signaling that that's the past and that's fine. You can have any feeling you want on the Clinton administration. This is a new path. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fine. He, he he is the man who gave the Democrats their supermajority. It's interesting, right? In a way, I feel like he's almost kind of like the Republican Joe Lieberman, and <laughs> that he's just like a very centrist guy, but he's certainly from a much more important state. And it, he just feels like a guy who's working outside of the party a lot. He is. Isn't that kind of... I think that's kind of the appeal. He's, he's not as prickly as McCain, mm. but he is... You know, there were, like, magazines where, like, this is one of the greatest senators of all time, mm-hmm. is when Alan Specter was in office. And it's like, he he's just doing the right thing consistently. He's the perfect, like, middle-of-the-ground senator trying to form consensus on both sides. And that's kind of Bush's message, is he wants to govern for everyone passionate conservatism it's not the like militant conservatism of like newt gingrich in the 90s right Mm -hmm. i think al gore's already beat him there right Mm -hmm. i don't see al gore as like a polarizing i don't think al gore is campaigning for half the country i think he's genuinely trying to reach across the middle i think bush is too i think this is more of a middle reach than cheney okay yeah that that makes sense so i guess i'll go with number four I had John Ashcroft, senator from Missouri, former governor. He would eventually be appointed as Bush's first attorney general. He kind of went through them. But <laughs> John Ashcroft, he's a hardcore law and order conservative. And he can almost serve as like a balance to Bush's compassionate conservative. He's a little bit more Gingrich than George W. Bush, I guess. So maybe that kind of balances out. I think of him as like kind of like the bad guy who's like willing to do the dirty work, whereas George Bush is like the fun guy you want to hang out with. John Ashcroft is like the... The, the stern operator behind the scenes. You know, policing went up when he was governor of Missouri. Prison population went up when he was governor of Missouri. A lot of his campaigns as governor and senator really focused on highlighting the divide between rural Missourians and people who lived in urban centers like St. Louis and Kansas City. Very much going for that. He, he was, in a way, running for only half the state. You know, again, my thought is just that he, he's a more traditional conservative, more more right-wing, and maybe that pulls in some people. Again, this is an election on the margins. Maybe it pulls in some people who, who are a little unsure about Bush. Also, it would maybe save John Ashcroft the embarrassment of losing his re-election 2002 a dead person. Mel Carnahan was his opponent in the 2000 Senate race, and he passed away in a plane crash before voting began, and he won. Don't you think that makes Ashcroft a bad pick if you're trying <laughs> to win? So, so... Bush wins Missouri by, like, 3%, mm-hmm. but Ashcroft loses Missouri by 2% in that same election. Don't you think that makes Ashcroft a liability on the ticket? It, it could be. It's just such a weird situation. I don't know if you can really track it. To... But it means 5% of voters showed up and you were like, you know, I'm going to vote for Bush, but I'm going to choose the dead Democrat over... And, like, hey, maybe they thought a dead Democrat's better than a living Democrat. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it was very clear that had Carnahan won, his wife, Jean Carnahan, would serve in his yes. stead. Yes, and she did. Yes. Don't you think it's a little, like, clearly the voters don't really love him. Maybe, but we we would never have to find out if he was nominated for vice president. Well, I guess we would. But you might. What if Bush <laughs> loses Missouri and therefore loses the election? That would be bad. <laughs> well, there you go. That's why I think he's a bad pick. 
That's my argument. Um, do you also think that his singing career hurts his chances? <laughs> that probably wasn't passed around as much there. That wasn't uh, in its current form, so... I don't know. I, I don't love Ashcroft just because I think he's weak in the state that Bush does win. Mm-hmm. And it, it's weird to think of Missouri as like a key swing state in this election that only goes for Bush by 3%. I think there are a couple people Gore can pick to make Missouri more competitive. I just worry that Ashcroft is kind of a liability. Look up John Ashcroft singing. It's beautiful. <laughs> Let the eagle soar. <laughs> An original song. Yeah. Let the eagle soar Like she's never soared before My number four, I went with another John, John Kasich, a representative from Ohio. At this point, he's been in Congress about 17 years. And he, he, he's a bit technical. I, I do think he's a bit technocratic in like his early years in Congress. He's, he's pursued Pentagon reorganization, you know, a very sexy issue, and, and wasteful spending. What if we made it a sexagon or a hexagon instead? <laughs> uh, but, you know, he was in favor of NAFTA. He did support the assault weapons ban, which I think is interesting. And after the Republican Revolution, he would go on to chair the Budget Committee in the House. And he introduced welfare reform legislation that would be signed by Clinton. He was also a major architect of the balanced budget that the nation is profiting from under this time. He's he's a Midwestern pick. Ohio is a state that goes for Bush by 3.5%. I don't actually think Bush needs to make an Ohio play here. I think he needs to make a Midwestern play because Gore would win Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. And and I think there's a way to play that message. Is It's like John Kasich can kind of be like, yes, I'm a technocratic guy. I focused a lot on government spending and Pentagon reform. But here, here's how technocratic Pentagon fixes are good for you uh, and tax cuts are good for you. It's the same aim that Romney went for when he picked Paul Ryan. I think Kasich actually is a bit more substance than Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's the same play. It's like Paul Ryan was like a charismatic young congressman from Wisconsin who was kind of famous. It's like, I want to cut things because it's good for you. You should have more money for yeah. you. <laughs> kind of like a bleeding heart conservative type play. Yeah. It's, it's less, like, grating. Yeah. He's less prickly. I give you some yeah. more. So I, I Kasich is my number three pick. I, I agree with all of what you said. He also, interestingly, he proposed, like, an alternative health care reform bill to Clinton's. It was actually apparently pretty similar to the Heritage Foundation plan, which was basically Obamacare. Introduced in the 90s, and it would have allegedly covered all Americans by 2005. So that's another sort of compassionate conservative feather to put in his cap. Like you said, he passed welfare reforms legislation, but he did still vote against Clinton on yeah. all counts in impeachment. Yeah. My, yeah, my thinking is like he's a good Republican soldier. He's a fiscal conservative, but he's pragmatic and he also has a bipartisan record. He, he kind of can play it both ways. He has experience going across the aisle, but he also has experience sort of like making the Democrats do things the Republicans want them to do. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And and so he can be kind of like, especially, you know, Bush, who is in a very Republican state, right? Probably hasn't had to have, like, that many battles with Democrats. Like, he, he, can, he, can, he can basically, like, you know, be the bridge from Bush to Congress. And, and he can also, you know, since he has experience with the Clinton administration, like, even campaigning-wise, he can be kind of, like, used as an attack dog against the Clinton administration. It's like, yeah, I liked them, but let me tell you, they did this, they did that, and I had to get them to agree to this and that, right? He, has, he just has a lot of credibility, I think when it comes to attacking Gore and the Clinton administration and all of that. So I, I think that's why well, I had him a bit higher. Was that, I, do, I do think there's actually a lot of substance here. Mm. And, and he's, of course, from a very important state as well. On the state, so 
I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, we're picking a lot of state picks. Bush and Gore both pick people from not competitive at all states. Yeah. Wyoming is deep red, Connecticut is deep blue, right? Even if you pick a state kind of just a little bit off the margin, don't you still help by drawing them away? Like, if Bush picks Kasich, does that not then draw Al Gore more to Ohio? He has to focus more attention there, and therefore maybe it pulls him away from focusing on places like New Mexico or Florida, right? It's just so weird that Lieberman and Cheney are just, they're just not geographically competitive at all. I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of been that way since like 92 though, right? Maybe you could argue Gore was kind of geographically competitive for Tennessee, but Jack Kemp was not geographically competitive at all. I yeah. think there's just a rethinking of why you pick a vice president, right? I, I think it's an era where like the parties themselves are pretty united and they're they're national parties now, right? You're not, you don't really have sort of Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats. They're a lot more homogenous ideologically. And so I think they, they feel less pressure to play the geography game. I think they're making really more ideological and sort of like experience picks instead. Yeah, cool. John Casey was your number three. Mm. My number three, I went with Olympia Snow, a senator from Maine, one of the most moderate members of the Senate. Maine is a state that goes for Gore by 5%, with one of its districts going for him by just 2%. Its congressional districts vote on their own in the Electoral College. But I think it's a small enough state where a VP candidate can actually make a big difference. There's actually a lot of evidence that picking a VP candidate from a smaller state disproportionately helps you in that state, because smaller states tend to have more brand recognition with people from their state, right? I also think it shows that Bush is willing to embrace a state that's kind of as opposite of Texas as you can get. <laughs> I, I picked her as my number one in Dole uh, last year, in 96, as kind of like a game changer for Dole. It's like, this this would be a stretch, but it's something that could maybe like get something out to help in an election that Dole pretty much knew he was going to lose. I don't think she's as game-changing here in 2000, but I do think it's a sensible move if you're looking to cut Democrats off at the center. You know, she did also vote to acquit Clinton during the impeachment, and, and she's a little maverick herself. I keep kind of going back to these people. Regionally and ideologically, you can show that, sure, maybe you're not the party of these fancy elites in the cities, like the New York City, the LAs. You're not those people, but you're more than just rural America, is right. Maine and Texas are like totally opposite places, but yet there's kind of a common message here. The Republican Party is broad and all-encompassing. <laughs> a big tent, if you will. Right. <laughs> Instead of the party of people who own both oil companies and baseball teams. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I, I didn't think of that where the idea of, like, the real American, mm. right? That the Republicans, sort of like both the Buchananites and the Gingrichites kind of tried to push in the 90s, didn't really seem to work for them on the presidential level. Mm. And so I think that that's a good idea, like sort of reminding people that the party is supposed to be a big tent. You know, I think cutting away the margins, again, a female candidate, I think that helps. Very moderate. Yeah, I, I guess, do you think, what do you think the trickle-down effect is in, in like, New England? Like, do you think picking, I, we're not, I don't know that either of us are very familiar with New England, but do you think that she flips Maine? Or do I don't you, know. So yeah. that's, that's what's tough. Even though it's a very, very small state, and she's, like, kind of a big name there, I don't know. Do I think it maybe wins you a few hundred female votes in Florida? Yeah, maybe. Maybe wins you a few hundred female votes in New Mexico, too. Mm -hmm. We've been picking women candidates for Republicans since 88, actually, a few times, right? Mm -hmm. As it's like, there's kind of this moment for the Republicans to say, yeah, you picked Geraldine Ferraro in 84. Mm -hmm. You haven't picked a woman since, but, but we're doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and we keep doing it. We got no problem with women. Yeah. There are women who, like, totally prescribe to our theories, by the way. Like, our ideology is just as valid as yours. Mm. Get with it. You're not special. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a play for, like, the Clinton-Bush voters. 
the voters mm. who were Clinton supporters and who maybe they think Al Gore is like too elitist for them, right? Mm. I think he, I think Al Gore comes off more intellectual than Bill Clinton, mm. and I, I'm not saying that's a, that's a problem, but it probably is electorally, right? Mm. And we talked when I mentioned her as my number one for Bob Dole last election. I said there's kind of a world where she can be both like the Republican Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton rolled into one, and I think that's what Republicans really need in the 2000s is they need kind of like a strong woman who is pretty independent and also like has clearly had this good story of coming up facing tragedy but still like managing to succeed Mm. is you need kind of an inspiring female figure in the republican party that they don't really have i think think it's a fair point who knows what changes it has just for like the party in general if you go with that strategy as opposed to the cheney one yeah all right I can get down off it. For, we have the same number two pick. We both did uh, Connie Mack III, or as he is actually known as Cornelius Alexander McGillicuddy III. It's so weird to me how that they just like shorten their names like that. He's a senator from Florida. I initially didn't like this pick because I was just like, of course we were going to pick somebody from Florida, right? But A, it feels irresponsible not to pick somebody from Florida. B, he actually, I do think, does like jibe a lot with like Bush's vision of compassionate conservatism. He was big on expanding health care and medical research initiatives, including the Women's Health Initiative. I mean, to cancer survivor so he he did a lot of advocacy for funding cancer research he doubled funding to the nih he worked to strengthen the fda and he also worked on tax code reform and deficit reduction so he's kind of this perfect balance of compassion and conservative and comes from important state also fun fact he defeated a fellow named hugh rodham for the Senate in 1994. Hugh Rodham, of course, the brother of Hillary Rodham Clinton. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, he's also my number two. He's, he's been, of, of course he's the senator from Florida, and his big issues are, like, senior issues. <laughs> it's like, he's big on healthcare, Medicare, cancer research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably should have put him on the ticket. Why I have him as number two and not number one, and I don't have a Florida person as number one, is because Bush won Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, presumably, right? Probably, like, possibly 50 votes, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do think he's kind of unexciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is it Cheney at least has, like, a substance. There's, like, a weird... I need to know more about this guy. <laughs> this guy's suspicious. I think Connie Mack's just kind of, like, ahead. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I don't think he hits on Bush's key message very strongly. It's difficult to imagine them driving home a point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you you gotta pick the Republican senator from Florida for obvious reasons. Yeah. Also, a grandson of Connie Mack I, who was one of the, the longest-serving manager in Major League Baseball history, a Hall of Famer. I'm sure why I'm sure Bush would love that. Bush loves yeah. baseball. Wouldn't he want to hang out with Connie Mack's grandson? Come on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Number one. Oh, we also have the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we have Tom Ridge, governor of Pennsylvania, former representative of pro-choice. Conservative who's popular in Pennsylvania. He focused a lot on like applying market solutions to Pennsylvania. He, he was a big advocate of charter schools and school choice, and he increased competition in electronic utilities. But he also pursued funding for CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program, and created a rainy day fund of $1 billion in case of economic recession in Pennsylvania, which, hey, might give Bush some idea on what to do with that big fat surplus he's got coming in as president. He managed to increase the state's budget and lower its taxes, which is the kind of tricky balance Bush, and I feel like every Republican since has tried to strike. But he was also considered like a law and order governor. So what he lacked in certain conservative orthodoxies, he made up for in other areas. Again, you know, like a, a conservative conservatism as a force for like positive good instead of like negative liberty that I think that Bush was like trying to envision the future as. Yeah. I also have him as my number one. I, I think the combined state and federal experience is good. Yeah, the same Pennsylvania electoral mentions as I think we talked about for Spectre 
before. He was kind of like a do-nothing congressman, kind of like nothing until he ran for governor. He'd also become the first Secretary of Homeland Security for Bush mm-hmm. in a couple short years here. Because when I think of a state that needs to secure its borders <laughs> from foreign ne'er-do-wells, it's Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, really, we should be building fences around Pennsylvania. <laughs> think uh, just, just keep the city of Philadelphia I say that away as some, from everyone. I else. say that as someone who went to the Jersey Shore a lot as a child and had to deal with those Philadelphians. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go Mets. <laughs> Go Rangers. Uh, I, I, I had him as my number three for Dole last episode, kind of noting, yeah, his e-government projects in Pennsylvania and his law and order track record. But yeah, also his work on schools, education, and the child health insurance program. This is a compassionate conservative choice, if I've ever seen one, uh, just packaged in a bit of like a tougher exterior, right? It's kind of like a Mike Pence choice in that he was like, this congressman turned governor, brought back from the dead. Mm-hmm. in a way. But I also think there's like a pitch here more so than like our Florida pick of Connie Mack of like the real America. Uh, and this is going to be a thing that's going to come up several times in this episode and the next. Yeah, Pennsylvania is like the working class. It's the Midwest. It's a place where Republicans probably need to start making a play. And I think they start to clock onto that in the Obama years. And obviously in 2016, they would make that play quite successfully. There's a book I'm going to bring up later, probably in the next episode, that that informs kind of a lot of my views on this. But yeah, I think he pitches like real guy, working class in a way that Cheney absolutely does not. Mm -hmm. Cheney is like, if there were a whiter than white collar, that's Dick Cheney. (laughs) Clear collar. Yeah. (laughs) Platinum collar. (laughs) It's it's that episode of 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy is like, I tried to give them my American Express invisible card, but they wouldn't take it. (laughs) Right. That's Dick Cheney. Yeah. Yeah, and Bush clearly likes it. Gives mm-hmm. him a big job. Yeah. Tom Ridge. Tom Ridge. All right. Those are our alternatives to Cheney. Uh, as for some trends, basically just insiders. Mm-hmm. It looks like Bush just needed an experienced hand at his yeah. side. Yeah. Someone to convince voters that he could get it done. Mm-hmm. No governor, governor tickets. Good That's job. not true. Tom Ridge is a governor, but he had been a representative before. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was a rule. That was not made clear to me. But uh. <laughs> that's, that's the rule. You can't have a ticket with zero federal experience. All right. I don't know. How many people do you think knew Mike Pence was a representative before he was a governor in 2016? Well, I, a lot of people. Yeah. I also think that's a, that's a special case. Okay. <laughs> that was a zero any experience, plus someone with some little bit of experience. Okay. Mike Pence has been chair of the Republican... How many people do you think know what chair of the Republican conference is? I know. I do. <laughs> Uh, Bush's shortlist, put together by Cheney, as you said, who's of course leading the search, included Tom Ridge, former Missouri Senator John Danforth, John McCain, and New York Governor George Pataki. So deviating from our usual schedule, but to close us out, what what did happen to Cheney? Well, he would be sworn in as vice president, of course, and we go on to be perhaps both the most hands-on and reviled person to ever hold the office. He exerted his influence early, privately funding the Bush transition team while the election results were still up in the air because they couldn't receive public funds while it was still contested in Florida. He himself was like, make Donald Rumsfeld secretary of defense, his old boss, because he thought Colin Powell was like too moderate. Colin Powell, of course, would be named Bush's secretary of state. And he also tried very, very, very hard to get Paul Wolfowitz, who was like this neoconservative scholar and ideologue, to be named as director of central intelligence. Unfortunately, Wolfowitz would just have to settle for being director of the World Bank a few years later and then have to resign in disgrace. 
After 9-11, he was a driving force behind the war on terror, and most notably the justification for the Iraq War, when he openly contradicted American intelligence showing that Saddam Hussein did not, in fact, have weapons of mass destruction or any links to Al-Qaeda. There are stories of him, like, literally, like, speaking with CIA people and being like, tell me your intelligence, tell me what you got, being very hands-on with how decisions were being made. He also may have leaked Valerie Plame's status as a secret agent to the press as retaliation for her husband expressing doubts about the veracity of the justification for the Iraq War, which led to his chief of staff, Scooter Libby, being convicted. Uh, pretty much any deleterious policy of the Bush administration, be it the CIA, black site, enhanced interrogation techniques, ambitious tax cuts, or environmental deregulation can be traced back to Cheney, who's considered Bush's closest advisor. And things would get even stranger after the 2004 election, so we will talk about that. 2004 episode. <laughs> cool. And that is our first half of our 2000 show. So stay tuned next week to hear our picks for gore and our conclusions on this hellish election year. You can find us everywhere that podcasts are found, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and you can find all of our works on thepostwriter.com, including our Running Mates portal. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we will catch you on part two of this episode next week. Thanks for listening.